0: Thank you everyone for being here today. It's my pleasure to welcome you here to Hoover, uh, whether in person or virtually for our first ever Juneteenth celebration. My name is Josie Bianchi and I work in the director's office here at Hoover. I'm also a member of our Black Associates group, the Black Diaspora United or what we call BDU and We found it fitting to start today's event with a brief intro on behalf of BDU as a reflection of how this event came to be. Um, The nascence of it was a bit different and unique than other events here at Hoover, rather than coming out of a working group or a research initiative, or because someone very important was coming to Hoover and the events team had had to manage their time here. This one came from us, uh, from myself and black staff members who looked around and said, hey, we we meet monthly, we talk about what it means to be black at Hoover and at Stanford, and our affinity group is wonderful, but we should really take action and do something for the greater community. Uh, With Juneteenth sort of growing in the national consciousness in recent years, uh, with it being a a federal holiday last year, and with all of the new celebrations here at Stanford, we found it fitting to have a version of our own to do Juneteenth our way, Hoover's way and so i'm very grateful that this is happening um i couldn't have done it without my colleagues in bdu especially anita and tess thank you both so much for all of your organization to the events team yeah yeah give it up give it- <laughs> um to the ENP team as always Taron, virtual hannah and janet making sure everyone knows where they're going and that the food is really good that we're going to have afterwards Thank you, thank you, thank you. And of course, to my director's office team and staff, I feel like the luckiest girl in the world um, on our team. And thank you guys for being supportive. Of course, to Director Rice, uh, this wouldn't have happened without you. And our panel wouldn't be of the highest quality if you hadn't signed on. So thank you. And with that, I invite you to come up here. Thanks so
1: much, Josie. And I, I just have to say that Josie just had a very big weekend because she is class of 2020, and she finally got to graduate from from Stanford. (laughs) Well, I'm delighted to host this Juneteenth uh, celebration, as Josie said. Uh, This came from uh, our associates who, when we were talking about what we might do for Black History Month, said, you know, what we think we really want to do is we want to celebrate Juneteenth. Uh, It has just been made a federal holiday, and um, I think it has a particular resonance uh, for the black community because it's not just the recognition of uh, the achievements of uh, blacks in America. That's a very important thing to do, too. But it's a recognition of of what I call very often uh, America's second bounding. Since America was in fact founded um, as a country with I will say a birth defect, despite its extraordinary um, founding documents about equality, it was of course founded as a slave owning state. And uh, as a result, uh, that founding didn't feel really quite complete. But Juneteenth was a kind of second founding when the slaves then uh, were freed It's a wonderful and interesting story about slaves who didn't know for a long time that they had been freed, many of them illiterate, many of them, of course, in those days was not easy for information uh, to travel. But uh, in my family, when we first uh, celebrated Juneteenth, I think I was probably um, in 10 or 11 years old. My parents decided to to celebrate this holiday a little bit. Uh, It was to imagine how our ancestors must have found uh, must have felt when they found out that they were free. And so it was the second founding for America. It was an extraordinary day for the descendants of, uh, for the slaves, and therefore for descendants of slaves to remember it. But we remember it here at Hoover as an opportunity uh, to bring the communities together. One thing that we've tried to do with our so-called affinity days um, is to ask our associates uh, who come from those cultures to share their culture. Uh, with the larger community so that we can all be a part of uh, the joys and the triumphs and the tragedies that define human beings and define different cultures. And so that's what today's celebration is about. Now, um, I'm going to actually go a little bit off script. Where's Samir? Is she here? Yes. Uh, You may have passed through this extraordinary um, set of... um, a display exhibition of some of the things that we have in the Hoover archives. I have to tell you, I didn't know till we walked in this hallway that we had all of these extraordinary things. So I thought it would be uh, a good thing before we get to our panel. If you, uh, the library and archives folks are gonna come and tell us a little bit about what's out there and then we'll get to our panel. Thank you.
2: Hi everyone. My name is Samira Bazorgi. I'm head of the exhibitions at the Hoover Institution Library and Archives. This is my colleague, Jean Cannon, who's the um, curator for North American Collections. And uh, Kyron had reached out to Eric about pulling some material out of our collection to showcase today. And of course, that's the reason why we do what we do. We love to show people what we have in the library and archives, which is open and available to not only Stanford community, but the general public. So today we pulled um, a selection of material, including posters, photo albums, and um, other materials uh, that document um, the black experience in the United States. Uh, We have posters from an artist named Billy Morrow Jackson who documented um, in 1965, a series of prints, um, including one with uncle Sam and the four girls who were um, killed in the Birmingham church bombings. Um, And Jean uh, can tell you a little bit about a new acquisition that we're really excited to show for the first time of a photo album that she just recently acquired.
3: Hello, everyone. Um, good morning, and uh, thanks for you know being here with us. And we're thrilled that um, so many of you got to see some of the wonderful um, materials from the library and archives. And I can assure you, this is just the tip of the iceberg. Um, we had a great time researching um, this. Uh, one of our newest acquisitions um, is out here in the in the case. Um, it's a photograph album, a very rare photograph album, featuring um, black women who served in the Women's Auxiliary Corps in um, World War II. They were stationed in Tennessee, um, and so you can see photographs of them both in uniform um, and enjoying themselves when they're you know when they're not uh, fully in service. And you can really get a sense of community um, from these from these photographs. So please, um, you know, after the program today, stop by um, and, uh, you know, take in these materials and Samira and I will be out there to answer any questions that you might have. Thanks very much.
1: Well, thank you very much. And I just have to say to uh, the library and archive staff and our director of it, Eric Wakin, who is unfortunately uh, down with that, Thing that everybody seems to be getting. Um, I just want to say that we are, after all, a library and archive, and we try to make those materials uh, uh, available to scholars, but also increasingly to our students. We think it's a really wonderful way for our students to engage history. Uh, with that, I just want to acknowledge uh, Vice Provost Matt Snip. Matt, I saw you here, yes who is uh, the vice provost for faculty development, diversity and, Ed- and engagement here at Stanford. Thank you for joining us uh, on this day. And uh, I'll now call to the stage Kyron Skinner, who is going to be the moderator for our panel.
4: We also have Professor Carolyn Hoxby, um, who will speak. She's in the economics department and a senior fellow at Hoover. We have Shelby Still, who you will see um, a senior fellow at Hoover um, on stage, or on on Zoom, and ultimately um, we have Jindai Fraser, a visiting distinguished fellow at Hoover, and I think she'll speak at the end. By you'll you'll take care of that.
1: Before we get to that, we we just have a very important guest who's walked in, and I have to introduce her because she's the provost of the university, um, and that's really important. I was one. This is um, Persis Drill. Thank you for joining us.
4: I think I just, are these on, learned yesterday that I'm the moderator. I knew I was on a panel, so (laughs) leave it to um, Condi Rice to spring something on you um, at the last minute. But um, thank you all for being here. And we are being um, live streamed to the larger Hoover community. So many who are still working at their desk or watching. Um, this is the first time that I've been in the same room with the provost. Um, but her sister and I were both professors in upstate New York. Um, at the same time, I was at Hamilton and I think she was at at Colgate. So we used to conspire about how we were going to get out of upstr- uh, upstate New York. And I think we both um, succeeded. But we had a great year talking and she Um, is a wonderful historian, and we were facing some of the same challenges early in our career as women in upstate New York. Is a place you may not exactly um, want to be, but um, Condi Rice insisted I take that job, and it was a great experience. (laughs) Um, So I want to start, and Shelby, there he is. Um, Welcome, Shelby Still. Thank you. Um, I'd like to start um, by talking about not so much Juneteenth, but what it inspires in terms of your own narrative. Um, I think we as scholars sometimes forget that the larger public and even our own colleagues don't know very much about us, how we got to where we are and how our own biography has intersected with American history. So I'd like to just be very broad and say, tell us a little bit about yourself. I can prompt it because I do know something Important around race and rights um, for each panelist, but um, if you'd like to just start, I think I'll start
5: with Carolyn. Okay, so um, I think I'll start with a photograph. That's an important photograph from my family, mm-hmm. and it has in it my great great grandmother who was born in slavery, and she, she, I'm not that old, okay, but. She 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 lived well past her one hundredth year, so she overlapped with me. And in this photograph, there is my great great grandmother, uh, my grandmother, uh, my great grandmother who came up from the south from Georgia, and my grandfather who uh, got a really good education in Akron, Ohio, and my grandmother who was fortunate enough to be the daughter of the housekeeper for Kent State University. so she grew up surrounded by books. Mm-hmm. And then my father, who um, was the Undersecretary of Education for the United States Department of Education and also the head of a major foundation. And then there's my younger um, my older sister, sorry, and um, who is now uh, a vice provost at Princeton. And so I think it's it's a photograph of all of these different generations and how they came out of slavery and became people who were very well-educated. So it's really like a a generational photograph of education and the end of slavery and so forth. And I, I always think of that like one person was a slave, one person is the vice provost at princeton and it's it's a wonderful it's, to me it's just a story of america and how people how black people in america have really been able to improve themselves over time
1: yeah yeah, yeah i think uh, you've gotten us on a right on the right track because i'd like to tell a similar story um actually um one of my favorite photographs is of my great-grandmother, Julia. And Julia Head was uh, the daughter of the slave owner. And she was probably 12 or so when um, slavery ended. Uh, but she was known in our family as Grandma Julia, who to the end of her life would sit on her back porch with her pipe in her mouth and her shotgun across her lap, just in case I guess somebody was coming. Um, and uh, By grand- the way, she's
5: exactly like my great-great-grandmother,
1: <laughs> who also did exactly, <laughs> exactly the same thing. These were tough ladies. <laughs> These they, were tough ladies. They were tough ladies. <laughs> but uh, but uh, great-grandmother Julia, actually, because she was the daughter of a slave owner, she learned to read. And uh, that was, of course, illegal for slaves to learn to read. But she learned because she was in the house all of the time. And um, she then um, kind of passed on this love of reading to her son, my grandfather, John Wesley Rice, and John Wesley Rice became just uh, somebody who cared a lot about books and, and intellectual life and so when he was about 19 he decided he wanted to get book learning in a college and so he asked how a black man could go to college or a negro could go to college probably in his day a colored man could go to college and they told him about this little presbyterian school that was 30 miles from where he lived it was called stillman college and they said they train uh colored men so he saved up his cotton he went off to stillman college And um, he paid for his first year and then they said, so how are you gonna pay for your second year? He said, I'm out of cotton. They said, you're out of luck. But thinking quickly, he asked how those other boys were going to college. And they said, well, they have what's called a scholarship. And if you wanted to have a scholarship, you could be a Presbyterian minister and then you would have a scholarship. And my grandfather said, that's exactly what I have in mind. And uh, (laughs) my family's actually been Presbyterian and college educated ever since. But it was it was John Wesley Rice that took that step that then put our entire family on uh, the road to education. And I think what uh, the theme that you're hearing here is that for so many families uh, who came out of slavery that next generation, they somehow understood that getting that education was going to matter. I could tell a similar story on my mother's side of every single one of them being educated. Um, In fact, my grandfather, just literally dragging one of his children to college um, and telling him he didn't have a, a ticket back, so better stay and get his degree. And so somehow this education was so critical uh, to all of us. And we can talk later about why I fear that that pathway may not be there for all uh, Black Americans today, but in our day, education, it was faith, family, and education.
4: Um, absolutely. And we, I think we all have some stories like that before I make remarks, I'd like to hear from Shelby still.
6: No, I agree entirely with, with, uh, uh, what Condi just said in the, this story. Um uh, my family is a little bit different. Um, my father had a third grade education. Um, uh, my grandfather was actually a slave. So, uh, I, 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 isn't it ironic that we brag about that? Uh, but in any case, he was. Uh, my mother, uh, on the other hand, was sort of uh, a little bit upper-class white and uh, had a, had a uh, master's degree from the University of Chicago. And, and uh, yet it was probably my father with his third grade education who was the, the intellectual uh, in the family. Uh, they met in in the, as founding members of CORE, Congress of Racial Equality. In Chicago, in the 50s, in the excuse me, in the 40s, um, and they were civil rights activists um, uh, from that for the rest of their lives, uh, constantly involved and and uh, in in particular in the Chicago area, but uh, but nationally as well. And uh, so I I got I was a core baby, as they say. I got a chance to, to, to be in that that movement and see how, how it worked. And uh, it it is, uh, boy, and it was an absolutely amazing experience. I didn't necessarily understand that at the time. Uh, I got a little tired of marching around with a sign in the rain. Uh, but uh, nevertheless, I, I got a chance to really, and I suppose this is how I'm as even as a kid made a certain commitment to the struggle that was, that was obviously going to be a part of uh, growing up black in America. Uh, it's what interested me. It's still what interests me uh, more, than, more than any other, uh, any other profession. Uh, so I, I see myself uh, as a child of both my parents and uh, feel, I feel blessed in both counts.
4: Um, Thank you, um, Shelby, for those remarks. Um, I'll just say a couple of um, statements about my own background, and I think we're all telling a version of the same story. Um, But instead of having a Presbyterian um, background, I have a Lutheran and Catholic from parents that were both born in the South quite remarkably, I've had people say, why aren't you Baptists? And um, I said, no, my mother went from K through 12 to a Catholic school with her four siblings. And somehow her parents managed, um, without much of an education, to pay the tuition um, and never miss paying the tuition. But on my father's side, um, he's from Alabama, and um, he grew up in a Lutheran household. And the pathway to the middle class was for some of his uncles to become Lutheran ministers. And that's how they um, were able to get college educated. I believe there's a black college in Alabama that has buildings named for um, that wing of my family known as the Dickisons. And I tell everyone I grew up battling the Reformation. Um, (laughs) And ultimately, um, the mother's religion always wins out. So um, I settled on Catholic, but I'm completely Um, comfortable in um, the Protestant-Lutheran environment. Um, But education was really key, and many don't know that um, Condi and I met separately from our families. But ultimately, our fathers became friends, both from um, segregated Alabama. Both went on to get doctorates and be academic administrators and professors in their own right. And at one point, um, I was working as Condi's postdoc, at Stanford when she was provost, and her dad was my dad's boss, de facto, because he was on the governing board for the California Community Colleges, uh, where my father was president of a college or two. So education and religion and faith and family, you're right, um, got us, I think, more than anything else where we are today. But let's go on and have a conversation about Juneteenth and um, as much as we can about what it means. It is striking that from the Emancipation Proclamation to the time that those in Galveston found out um, that they were in fact free, there'd been several years and a lot had happened and the the union had won the war. And apparently they didn't um, even know um, of that fact. Um, But... It means more than Galveston. It's about equality, it's about freedom, democracy, representative government. Um, I'm interested in your thoughts, not about so much of a deep history of Juneteenth, but if you have it, please share it. I'm still learning a lot, and we'll find out that our archive has more than we could ever imagine on that in other episodes. But what of the principles of the American Bounding, do you think are represented in the fact that last year, in a nearly unanimous vote, our Congress approved um, this national holiday. National holidays speak to our values, um, but that only works if it's turned into action. So, I'll start this time with Condi, move to Carolyn, and then back to Shelby.
1: I, I just think, as I said a little bit in my opening remarks, I, I think it's uh, recognition um, that uh, america's democracy which i will state unequivocally i've been all over the world is the uh, envy of the world in terms of democracy because whatever problems we have we actually have dealt better with with difference i think than any other place that i've ever been but it's acknowledgment that we didn't start out that way. It's acknowledgment that we started with what I've called the birth defect of slavery. I don't like the word original sin because I actually think uh, there might have been another people's that probably have a claim to America's original sin. Um, but the, the notion of uh, a second founding when slavery uh, was abolished and maybe even a third founding with the civil rights movement of 1964 and 1965 because even though my ancestors uh, probably finally got word and they were now free we had a long time uh, almost 100 years until my father could uh, vote in Alabama reliably until my parents and I could go to a movie theater And so the point that I would always make when I was traveling abroad and people would say well how can you talk about democracy, how can you talk about American democracy given what your history is is it's because of our history that I can talk to you about democracy not as a final destination point but as a journey, something that you work toward. Uh, that you never quite perfect, that you have to keep putting uh, a brick in day by day. And so it's that activity of building democracy, overcoming and working to to deal with your past, uh, that is so important. And I would make one other uh, point, you mentioned Congress um, almost unanimously agreeing to Juneteenth, Uh, America is fortunate to have institutions that were uh, given to us by founding fathers who were definitely imperfect. I mean, Thomas Jefferson with the great words, but still a a slave owner, but who gave us these institutions where we have been able to use them uh, to make progress. I think it would have been unthinkable to them that it would have been the Constitution, the courts, that thurgood marshall and the naacp would have used to finally give uh rights to the descendants of slaves in my home state of alabama and uh one of the things that's sometimes not understood you know we know the protest movements um there's a port- portrait out there um our artist uh, had a rendering of the four little girls who were killed in the birmingham church in 1963 one of them was my kindergarten classmate, uh, Denise McNair. Another one, Addie Mae Collins, was in my uncle's uh, homeroom. And so this was very personal to me and to my family. And we recognize the violence and we understand the protest and uh, Kelly Ingram Park and Bull Connor's bulldogs. But it was also uh, the people who, the so-called Margold report, with the NAACP sitting at a table every Friday morning from 1937 on, deciding what court cases to challenge segregation with, what court cases, they used the institutions. And then finally, of course, you would have the legislation of 64 and 65. So uh, I think it's really important for Americans to recognize that the democratic struggle has many vectors. One is protest, uh, another is activism. But it's also the use of the institutions uh, to the benefit. Next,
6: Shelby. I was I, from the very hearing about Juneteenth. It was it's been a little hasn't hasn't gone down easily. Um, it frankly it is as uh, we have, it's a story of uh, once again blacks being victimized and then. Being saved in a sense, finally getting met the message that uh, slavery was over, and that they were free. Um, some two years after uh, the Emancipation Proclamation, um, well, that's not that. What have you been doing? What were you doing for two years? Uh, it, it, you know, didn't someone want want to take initiative in some way and say, well, the whole country is free. What what what's In other words, it's not a story that that shows Blacks in charge. They now have freedom, Uh, uh, the great blessing that they have longed for. Uh, And it just seems to me that there might be some events in history that would capture that spirit of Black America, the spirit in which we Uh, we overcame and we insisted on uh, on overcoming we strived uh, to achieve things and and, and one of my favorite uh, figures is uh, in black American history is Nat Turner. Now that makes me kind of radical but nevertheless you think about the fate of slaves and there's a there's a plausibility to uh, what nat Turner did and uh, one one has to has to respect uh someone who says uh, give me liberty or give me death and that's that's what he did uh i love that that uh, i identify with that i don't know if i could live up to it frankly but i certainly uh, uh identify with it uh so any, at any rate it It seemed to me Juneteenth pulled us back to this era of Blacks as as sort of almost invisible people with no will of their own and so forth. Uh, and, And I think today we face a situation in America that is absolutely remarkable. And that is that racism and racial oppression are over with. They happen, it's over. Uh, it's horrible uh, what went on. But we, we simply are free of that today. We, In other words, we achieved the freedom we always said we longed for. Martin Luther King longed for the, the promised land. And, and we're there. We've been there now, I think, since the 60s. I would date it at the passage of the uh, Civil Rights Bill of 64, Civil Rights Act of 64. Uh, we've been free since then. And I think our problem, we keep fighting the problem. Freedom comes always as a shock. It scares the hell out of you. You you now are responsible for yourself. And you know you're not in a situation to be competitive with with your oppressor, your, your former oppressor. And so what invariably happens is when we get to that moment where we are clearly free, we deny it. And we say, oh, my God, no, racism is everywhere. Racism is systemic. Racism is structural. Racism is about on and on. We put that evil demon back in place because we know it. And we have just achieved a victory over it. Uh, but what it stops us from doing is understanding that freedom comes with, with enormous responsibility and you ignore the responsibility, then you don't develop, you don't grow. Since the mid 60s, when we won our freedom, we slipped into decline. And we have declined relentlessly since the mid 60s. And we are farther behind whites today by most socioeconomic measures uh, than, than we were back in the 1950s when we were on a slow move, when the government didn't care about us and we, we were on a slow movement upwards. Uh, so again, it, it seems to me that the Juneteenth does not deal with the problem Blacks have today, which is freedom, not racism. And that we, we need, I'd love to see a, uh, a holiday devoted to Black self-help. Uh, devoted to being frank with us about responsibility, about overcoming deficits and, uh, and all of these disparities that we complain about uh, all the time. What if we take responsibility for those things and move us forward? Uh, and and I'm, it's, it seems to me that uh, you, the, prob- I, the problem I have with Teeth is it rom- it's kind of romantic. It, it, it doesn't address um, the, the, the real circumstances that Blacks face in this country. Um, and maybe it's interesting to talk about it even in that sense, to be critical of it. Uh, then it probably begins to have some value. We can better see where we actually are with regard to, to America and, and, and the future. Uh, but beyond that, it's it's something that institutions love things like that because they can make posters and do TV commercials and they can uh, sort of, you know, suggest that they're all for minorities and they're, and, uh, and so they paper the wall with, with pro-minority uh, posters and so forth. Well... Um, we're still falling farther behind. Uh, you know, in, in the state of California, um, the eighth, black eighth graders grad, excuse me, black 12th graders graduate at an eighth grade level. I'm sure everybody here today has got a, a, a pile of statistics saying pretty much the same thing. Uh, illegitimacy rates, broken, broken families. We have some real problems. Um, and uh, no protesting racism is now suddenly, not suddenly, but has become irrelevant. Uh, and it, it, it just seems to me that if we're going to tiptoe into the area of race, we got to be a little braver and, and, uh, and really go a little deeper and see if, see if there isn't some way to get to, to move us ahead. Um, beyond, um, well, if there isn't some way to move us ahead, let me just leave it there. Thank you.
5: I thought I would just read a a nice quotation from John Albuquerque who said, let's make Juneteenth a commemorative event, not of a horrific institution that our country embraced, but rather as a showcase of the strength of the American spirit to recognize wrong and set about making it right. In this spirit, America moves ahead today in leveling playing fields and achieving greater equality. Let us all celebrate Juneteenth, which teaches us about our country's greatness in our use of our hearts to hear and learn and to work together for all that is good and just. Yeah, it's beautiful.
4: Um, Thank you for those comments, and um, Shelby, um, there's a lot to unpack in in what he offered, and I think um, much of what you said really has to be turned in to a set of hypotheses about um, where we are now on issues of race and rights in America. Um, I do think freedom is the battleground of the future. It always has been, and how that interacts with race is worth thinking about a lot more systematically. Um, and I do think your your larger point is about African Americans taking agency, and you're asking what happened um, in Galveston um, around that issue. I don't really have the answer, but I think it's worth understanding what was going on in those couple of years. And I think we, we may see some defining ideas, essays coming out of Hoover using the archives on that fact. Um, and I know that you are right about the statistics of where we are as a nation with African-American education statistics and unemployment and opportunity, but I also think there is a different black America that is emerging that will probably be part of the self-correction of what's happened since the civil rights era. I believe one in 50 African-Americans now um, is classified as a millionaire in the u.s during the period of donald trump's presidency um, more african americans enrolled in medical school coming out of college than at any point in recent years i'm a graduate of spelman college a small african-american college for women in atlanta and according to the nsf 50 percent of all black women who get a PhD in a STEM field get their first degree from Spelman College. Um, And I remember the dean, Dr. Etta Faulkner, who in the 80s had a vision of a natural sciences division that has become what it is actually today. So I do think there's more agency going on in um, African-American communities than is largely reported on. And Shelby, you've talked about Um, the profound impact of African Americans in the cultural realm in music um, and in art and how that's had a global impact. Um, So I I think there's a great narrative that we can tell that takes away from the grim statistics that are also true.
1: If I could just add to that I I really do think we need to spend more time on this question of agency and I want to thank Shelby, for a, a more challenging way to think about uh, race in America, uh, because it's very easy to lay blame on history or circumstances or whatever, and not to think about how you get out of it. And and uh, Kyron, your point about Spellman reminds me, uh, so a friend grew up around the corner from me, his name is Freeman Robofsky. He's been the president of the University of uh, Maryland, Baltimore County for I think 18 years or something they have produced more black male PhDs in the STEM fields than uh, all the other places combined. And it's because they set out to say, this is a missing link, uh, black, black people who really are in the STEM fields. So there are people who are, I think, trying to do something about this. What we have to remember is as we are, I hope, increasing the numbers of Black Americans in in education, in the intelligentsia, so to speak, in universities and the like, uh, that there are a few people, a lot of people who got left behind. And so one of my concerns is if I look at the K-12 education system, and this would speak to Shelby's point, there are just too many Black kids who in third grade can't read. And if you can't read by the time you're third grade, you're not going to read. And one of the things that we do a lot of work here at Hoover is on K-12 education reform, the role of school choice, the role of vouchers, because the really interesting thing about agency is if you wanna see poor parents lined up around uh, the block, just put the opportunity out there for an opportunity scholarship or a voucher or charter school and you will see those parents lined up around the block because they want their kids to have a better start than they did. And so I think this is this can be a challenging conversation, um, not just a commemorative one. As
5: yeah, you said. I, and I, I can't agree more. I think that Black parents actually are more aware of the fact that their kids need to get a good education and that they're often being put into schools that are just not promising. Uh, this is your so, area. Yeah, this I, is my area. I, that was teeing you up, But <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I work on this. And no, I, I, I think I have been, I can remember being in a charter school in Chicago uh, and having, was all Black, basically. Okay. Charter school in Chicago and having Black parents just coming in the door and saying, Can't I please find some way to get my child into this school? Because I want my child to have a good education. And it was really, I mean, it was it was a, a certain level of desperation because yeah. there were only so many places in the charter school and they didn't want their kids to go to the regular public school. And um, yeah, I mean, I think they really care. They really care. They really care. I see that Josie is uh,
1: giving me the sign. If anyone has a question, is that what you're doing, Josie? So if there are questions, we have a couple of people with mics. Um, so, any questions from the audience? This is a panel of professors. We can begin to
4: point people out and <laughs> and, and, and
1: ask you. Yeah, um, we do to... cold call. I see someone right over here, and then Russell down here. Yeah.
6: This has been a fascinating discussion, and I learned a lot from Shelby about Nat Turner. So, guess what? I looked on my iPhone. His he was executed on November 11th, which happens to be a rather 1111, as you may know, is. World War One armistice, I guess I'd like to ask Shelby or anyone else on the panel, would it be constructive or counterproductive to have some kind of commemoration of his death oh, by hanging question. on November 11th, in, really? in, by the way, in Jerusalem, Virginia? Oh,
4: uh, so for everyone, I'll have Shelby respond to that. That was Paul Wolfowitz, a visiting fellow at Hoover, um, speaking, who's been Um, a a longtime friend and also a fellow traveler in the issues that we're talking about um, today. Shelby, over to you.
6: Well, uh, I would love to see a commemoration of Nat Turner. Uh, I would love to see him floating in American culture like uh, Patrick Henry is floating in American culture. Give me liberty or give me death. This is this is what happens when a, a, a people decide they are absolutely going to be free. We see even at this moment, so in, in the Ukraine, we, this, this attitude, God bless them. Uh, none of us know what will ultimately be the, the results of it. But isn't it a marvelous thing to see people take their, their fate, which is terrible, being bombed and so forth, uh, and say, nothing. Is, is going to stop uh, or prevent us from from achieving liberty and, and freedom. That's what makes America great. we, we, we have that that, that is the, that singularity that of, a, of devotion to an atavism. Um, and, uh, and that Turner, if, if somebody said to anybody here, you get up in the morning and be before, before light, you work hard all day, you eat pathetic, uh, stringy food, you, you, uh, and, and so forth. Uh, and then you, you do that the next day and the next day, and then you die. Give me death. And when you, when people have that attitude, it means that is that is an embrace of responsibility oh i am now free i am therefore now responsible i have choices to make i have directions to pursue uh i want i'm happy to have my fate in my own hands i don't think blacks will ever be equal uh to as a group certainly uh, uh until we until we 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 have that uncompromising determination to, I, 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 for example, when I see institutions lower standards to, to let Blacks in, and, and this, you are weakening people who, who, who are really ready to embrace difficulty, who, who are willing to stretch themselves. And you come in because it makes your institution look, look uh, like you're sensitive to racism you come in and take, steal that away from them. The woman who just was appointed to the Supreme Court uh, because the president wanted a a black woman. What is (laughs) it? So we have a black on the court, but the court betrayed its own highest values in bringing her on the court because this, this kind of liberal reformism believes that blacks are really inferior and that they cannot cut it. And they need the intervention of benign governments and organizations to get across the street, apparently. But I noticed so like those, areas, those areas of life where, where the, no, there's no interference and no sympathy. Basketball, how about sports of uh, music, so many other, other areas like that, where Blacks thrive uh, and, and compete. He's with I,
1: I think shelby's suggesting that we need maybe uh, we need affirmative action in the NBA. Is that what you're suggesting? <laughs>
6: yeah, well, yes. Yeah. So there's certain groups that are that, <laughs> that are, uh, can't cut it now, but will we therefore yeah, in, of spirit of inclusiveness, we will, we'll lower the standards. Make sure, yeah. Uh,
1: let me just—I'm going to go to Russell in one second here. I—I I do want to say uh, the woman who actually did get appointed to the Supreme Court was awfully well qualified. I think the question is by raising it. It's not is, her by problem. It, the problem. Yeah, but by raising it in that way—that you wanted to point somebody who was black—did you actually maybe undermine the argument about her qualifications? And I think that is—that's a point worth. Uh, worth making. Yeah, i Condi,
4: if I could yeah. just do a two-finger yeah. um, intervention yeah. there.
1: I actually a, a two-finger intervention is what, uh, academics say when they want to, yeah,
4: go ahead. <laughs> yeah, it, um, I learned it from you. So, um, I, I, think it, it doesn't matter whether you talked about race in the context of the woman being appla- um, appointed to the Supreme Court because there's such toxicity and division in our political system. She was going to be seen as suspect in any case. So it bothers me little that the president wanted to appoint a black woman. Um, She was clearly more qualified than most um, who um, would otherwise have been nominated. I just think we're still in a very racialized conversation. Um, And that's where I think Shelby makes an important point. Freedom is really hard, and one of the ways to hold it back is through to continue continually keep race in the dialogue. Mm-hmm. And it was going to be there with her in any case. Yeah, good point. Uh, Russell, yeah, can I
1: just Oh, say sure. It? Another two-finger <laughs> intervention. Sorry. Yes. Sorry. <laughs> I,
5: I, um, I, I have been really bothered by the fact that almost every time she's discussed, they say the first black woman on the Supreme Court instead of saying she's this extremely well-qualified person who went to Harvard Law School and was on the law review, and you know so forth and so on.
1: Yeah, yeah I agree. That's
5: not that's not her only qualification as being a black woman. Yes.
1: Yeah. Okay. Russell. Uh, thanks
4: uh, for uh, for this panel. Thanks for the celebration. In uh, several of your narratives, you talked about the role of um, uh, church affiliation, faith, religion in your family's history and in the freedom movement in general. How do you see the uh, standing of religion and faith in the predicament that we face today as Americans in general? Yeah, that's a hard one. So
1: I'll give it over to Kant. Con- <laughs> uh, Russell, I would start by saying I don't think we talk about it enough. Um, look, I'm i a very religious person, and um, I'd be the first to, to say that I'm more than happy to talk about my faith. Uh, But it's almost become a no-go zone for conversation. So I will sometimes have students come to me and they will almost whisper, I understand you're religious, and uh, I am too, right? So, and sometimes, and and Provost Drell knows that I bring this up pretty frequently, uh, when we talk about... um, marginalized or uh, groups who feel that they're not really included in, I'll just use our Stanford, in the Stanford dialogue, we don't sometimes realize how marginalized religious kids feel, Um, whether they are Jewish or uh, Protestant or Catholic or whatever, because in our public spaces, we've confused the idea that the government should have no religious preferences with the idea that if we have religious discussions, we're somehow violating church and state. And I think it's a particularly bad set of circumstances now because people are really obviously looking for something uh, that feeds a part of them that just the mind doesn't feed. And I'll call it the soul, maybe others would call it the spirit. Um, we see unbelievable levels of suicides among young people. And I mean, among high school kids. And you think, how could that be? Because we've all blamed social media, but something else is going on. And I think we just forget that human beings are spiritual beings as well as uh, intellectual beings. And so I hope that we can open up some space um, in our discussions and in our dialogues for the role of religion. Um, I think in the Black community, it's still pretty strong. Um, and, you know, you're still asked by your aunts and your cousins, do you go to church today? That's still a question. But um, I, I do think we're not opening enough space in public spaces for that for that discussion.
4: Um, Shelby, did you want to respond to the um... A question by your colleague, Russell Verman about um, religion, and the role it has played.
6: I don't think we would be here as, as a as a group, uh, were it not for the black church. Uh, this is a, I, this, the most rock steady institution in black America. And it always has been you know, when everything else uh, failed us. Uh, the church, the church was there, and it's there today. Um, it it just—I'm uh, surprised that, uh, uh, because it is an old and a, uh, it is such an old uh, institution, and, and so much a part of uh, of the black community. So I, the problem with it again is sometimes it survives by sort of tempering its uh, by avoiding some difficult questions of, of politics and culture and so forth. And, and can sometimes, because people go to it for, for different reasons. Uh, so it, I, I see that limitation, and I, I, I wish it wasn't there. But overall, I think the Black the black church is a, an extremely, um, everybody can go there. Everybody can find coherence. Uh, through religion uh, in, in the black church today and, and can do the right thing. It supports family life, uh, child development of children and so forth, the values, uh, it's simply mandatory. There's no way not to, um, and it never dies. That's something else, no matter how unpopular, uncool it is, unblack power it is, it doesn't die. It, it's, it, has, it stands in there.
4: Thank you, Shelby. I think we have um, I think we're any, we're... are we done with yeah. questions? Yes. For the most part, yes. we have a presentation.
1: Condi, you want to um, yes. tee that up, please? Yes, if you can tee up the presentation from Gentai.
7: Good afternoon, friends and colleagues at Hoover. Happy Juneteenth. I Thank wish you. I could be there with you today, but I'm across the world in Kigali, Rwanda, but I'm honored to be part of Hoover's first celebration of Juneteenth. I think it's so appropriate because Hoover stands for the freedom of people, societies and markets worldwide and Juneteenth is Freedom Day. I remember when I first celebrated Juneteenth, I was actually at Stanford as an undergraduate, um, a freshman at Stanford. And I remember how much fun it was, the sense of community, the family, going to picnics, um, really being embraced um, at Stanford. My family was far away, many miles away in Frankfurt, Germany at the time. And so Juneteenth has become a very special holiday for me over many, many years. When I think about Juneteenth, I also think about our continued responsibility to support those people who are struggling for their freedom, who are struggling for greater democracy. Um, I think about the struggle of African-Americans in the United States for greater freedom and for their civil rights over all these years and for their emancipation and how that inspired Africans uh, in their struggle for liberty against colonialism. And even today, I reflect on the Ukrainians and how they're fighting the tyranny of Russia. And so I think while we celebrate and enjoy the day, we also have to recommit ourselves to supporting that freedom of people everywhere in the world, their struggles for uh, voice, their struggles for liberty, um, their struggles, frankly, for human rights and to be counted. And so I hope that you really enjoy the picnic, the fun, the food, the music, um, the sense of community and family that's being created at Hoover today. Um, with that, again, happy Juneteenth, and I'll see you soon. Bye-bye. That was, of course, our our distinguished visiting fellow, Jendai
1: Frazier. Uh, Jendai uh, was ambassador to South Africa, assistant secretary of state for uh, African affairs, and as you can see, is currently in Africa, but we look forward to welcoming her back here to Hoover. And with that, turn it back to Kyron, who will end our... Those were wonderful closing remarks. And
4: as I um, just sit here listening and looking at the audience, some of you I've known for 30 years, um, I came to Hoover as a research assistant, um, well, a research fellow for George Schultz when he was writing his memoir. And at that point in Hoover's history, there were so few women fellows um, that I just recall... Um, becoming really great friends with the staff. There were quite a few staff members who were um, women. And some of those are still my friends today. They're probably my best friends. I never lost a friend. But what was interesting is that Hoover was very good at being colorblind. And I think what we see today, there was just no sense of discrimination. And when I interviewed with George Schultz, I don't think race ever came up. Um, and once he saw that I could write, I had the job. But what Hoover's now doing under um, um, Secretary Rice and um, Provost Drell, I think is becoming color brave. And having this discussion, I think today is the beginning of having some hard conversations that will continue into the future. And it's no surprise that the staff at Hoover um, pushed us Um, to live up to our larger selves. So thank you all for joining and we will do this again. And now let's have a party.